everyone, and uh, welcome to our first virtual industrial conference uh, at Ferropoint. Um, we're happy to have this uh, first event. Our event is going to consist of about two and a half hours, two panels, uh, and afterwards a Q&A session. Our first panel is going to deal with last mile effect on supply chain and warehouse automation. And the second panel will deal with the real estate side uh, of, the industrial, uh, uh, of the industrial sector. I'm very uh, happy to uh, introduce uh, our guests for this first panel. Um, I'm Adil Levitas with Ferropoint, uh, your host. Uh, and so our first uh, um, guest, David Schneider. Uh, Mr. Schneider is a supply chain management expert working for Fortune 500 companies. David designed and led the operation of a complex network of distribution centers and transportation networks. As an external, external consultant, he led complex strategic planning projects in over 50 different companies. As an internal consultant, he developed effective supply chain strategies that multiplied operating cash flow. Before starting his coaching practice in 08, David was the director of global logistics and engineering at Pet Boys Auto, where he led the effort to drive 100 million of cost out of transportation and double volume uh, shipped. Um, David, I'm very happy to have you with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. Our second guest, uh, um, Mr. Koei Apirian, is the CEO of Da Vinci Micro Fulfillment Company. He is a supply chain management professional with over 15 years of senior management experience. Koei specializes in e-commerce and channel merchandising, aligning operational initiatives with corporate objectives and building and leading high-performing teams that succeed through a culture of inclusion, collaboration, and engagement. Thanks for being with us, Corey. Thanks, happy to be here. And uh, our third guest uh, and final for this panel, uh, Mr. Andrew Benzinger. Andrew is the business development manager uh, at AutoStore, a warehouse automation uh, solution. He previously ran strategy for a firm focusing on the end of the line solutions to increase the visibility of KPIs while reducing the total and actual cost of fulfillment for e-commerce operation. At AutoStore, Andrew is responsible for developing and educating the U.S. market, focusing on groceries and all things related to micro-fulfillment. Guys, I'm so happy to have this forum. Um, uh, we're used to have uh, uh, panels and uh, webinars strictly for real estate. And I think this is uh, a start of a new era uh, for us and our investors and viewers uh, to really start thinking about real estate from both sides. Uh, not just uh, uh, the ownership, but also what's happening inside uh, the walls. Um, I've had uh, previous discussions with all of you, and uh, I thought that uh, um, for really the the, uh, the audience that would see uh, um, this first panel, it would give a lot, a lot of contribution to hear what you think uh, as key opinion leaders in the uh, supply chain uh, and warehouse automation uh, um, sectors. So, David, why won't you start us off uh, with the basic questions? Uh, of the supply chain evolution throughout the past 10 years, thinking about e-commerce, globalization, um, the larger fulfillment centers that came into play, uh, and practically, you know, in short, what you've seen for the past few decades. Sure. So, you know, way back when in the dark ages, e-commerce was something that was called catalog. Uh, the difference between catalog and e-commerce is the distance between or the time between when the customer orders the product and when they get the product. E-commerce makes it happen same day. Uh, two days is now the expectation is set by Amazon. Uh, what that's done is, is it's put tremendous operating pressure and uh, you know required the structure of a lot of uh, technology and then also operating excellence to be able to uh, supercharge supply chains to be able to uh, get goods into a customer's hands that quickly. But what's happened in the background, what uh, uh, those outside the industry don't see is, is that that two-day miracle is simply because of an explosion of the number of facilities that Amazon and others use to be able to get product delivered to customers. They do that uh, open up multiple facilities because the cost of operating those facilities is much less than the cost or perhaps equal to the cost of the transportation of having to get things from one centralized place. In the old days, yeah, you'd have five or six fulfillment centers that would cover 
the United States and each one of them being maybe two days or three days ground transit to be able to, to get to most of the population of the U.S. Um, the drive to be able to do next day or same day delivery means that you just can't operate out of those big facilities anymore. And so what's happened is an, is an explosion of, of, uh, of different solutions, some of it being uh, additional uh, uh, fulfillment centers that carry just the A-line product, uh, the fastest movers of all, but getting them closer to the marketplace. Uh, some retailers have decided to, you, know, you, you purchase online and you pick up at the curb or you pick up at the retail store. Uh, the Walmart and uh, Target programs are examples of that. Uh, but what's really happened is, is that you, know, you see hybrids. And that's what uh, that uh, uh, Amazon really built this massive hybrid multi-tier distribution network or logistics network where they bring goods in uh, into facilities that are dedicated to mainly receiving and then redistributing product to other fulfillment centers. Those fulfillment centers mainly service customer deliveries, uh, but those fulfillment centers may also put uh, uh, loads together or product together that go to even smaller facilities. And you see, you know, because of the truckload network that they've put together, massive amount of capacity for them to be able to shift inventory between these different levels of fulfillment that they have. And finally, with their delivery programs, being able to, instead of dispatch delivery trucks directly out of a ful fulfillment center, ship a truckload and to a, uh, a final mile facility where you unload it off the truckload, resort it into the delivery vans, and you reduce the distance the delivery vans travel. Uh, the stem miles issue of delivery. And so, you know, all of those, all those have been the trends that we've been watching for the past 10 years. Amazon really leveraging the uh, notion of uh, uh, capacity. You know, if you have too much capacity, you can always move more product into it, you know, breaking uh, constraints within their systems. And they, they constantly do that. Other companies are now starting to do that. Other retailers are starting to find ways that they can leverage their, their capacity. So uh, to me, that's the exciting change that's happening is, is that uh, because of COVID and, and the, uh, uh, what I'll call the catalyst, it's, it's a booster shot to e-commerce growth. It's just driven uh, the demand for e-commerce up. And it's not just for the big players either. There's lots of small e-commerce companies that have watched uh, their growth exceed what their the capacity is in their fulfillment centers. And they're struggling to try to keep up with that volume at peak. Uh, and so it's, it's an exciting time to be in the industry. Definitely. We see uh, e-commerce share of total retail, I think, increasing. Latest number I saw was more than 40%. Um, from 15% from total retail to 21 uh, plus percent, uh, which is pulling forward a few years um, uh, down the line. So that is an amazing boost. The infrastructure of warehouses uh, and companies are just not yet built uh, to really take that capacity on. Uh, and so, uh, Corey, you built uh, Da Vinci uh, to really give an answer or response to those things that are happening today. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit, how does um, the DaVinci solution helps that specific problem uh, for retailers to, uh, to meet their consumer on time? Yeah, <clears throat> so, you know, DaVinci uh, at, at the core is really built to help offset capacity and really to create agility within business models for retailers and brands. You know, operating in this space for over 18 years, I've seen the brands are the one who are asked to do the heavy lifting. Amazon has over 200 fulfillment centers. Not every online retailer or brick and mortar omni-channel counterpart has that many FCs. So what you see is not only the mass super centers like a Target and Walmart using their own brick and mortar facilities to uh, offset their own FC capacity and use those uh, stores as their micro fulfillment centers, 
but they're also asking their brand partners to take on extended assortment and even core assortment planning and, and fulfillment so they can ship things that are outside of the store direct to a consumer's home where the retailer may or may not have inventory dollar risk associated to that. Uh, and really what Da Vinci uh, is doing is really helping these brands to be a little bit more uh, extensioned to hit consumers in a same day, one day, two day operating structure. You know, uh, most of the brands that I see out there have multiple distribution centers. Not all of them are geared up for e-commerce fulfillment or any type of fulfillment for that matter. And they don't have the technology, the infrastructure or the people and training to be able to create the interoperation of a distribution center and a fulfillment center with all of that complexity in one. So DaVinci really tries to help create a little bit of simplicity in their model by offering several services that help them not only put the right planning of products in a online format that again, interoperates with inline versus online assortment planning, but also places products around the network, utilizing network op optimization and other tools so that you have the right type of inventory and quantities in the right regional areas across the country uh, that are available for that forward fulfillment. Got it. So, so to put it simple, uh, and you know, uh, not all companies can do the uh, what Nike did, uh, breaking up from the uh, Amazon uh, infrastructure and really building, starting to build their own infrastructure. Um, so, so to put it simple for for viewers, uh, uh, if you were um, a retailer in uh, in Philadelphia, for example, and um, and you want to sell your product, but at a certain um, at a certain point, you really can't sell your product. Let's say because of COVID. Uh, the closed uh, the, the stores are shut or your um, or your buyers um, are now looking for the online alternative so if I understand correctly they're facing three problems that you're trying to solve all of them at once one is the ability really to reach those uh, uh, consumers physically they need the supply chain uh, to be able physically to get to the consumer within a day to two days uh, shipment the second problem they're having is how should they uh, um, distribute or save their product within between the warehouses so they could have, as you say, network optimization so they know where they should put what because they know the consumer uh, habits and they learn them over time. So that's the second thing they need to think about. And the third thing they need to think about is actual sale channels uh, because they were used to uh, uh, ship trucks to the store and the consumer will come into the store and buy those uh, uh, shampoos, for example. And now they need to make sure that their shampoos are going online and reaching those customers. Do I get that correctly? These are the three issues you're trying to solve? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And uh, there is a inline versus online demographic of consumer and buying habit that exists. And, and all three of those components are directly connected uh, at the core and, and also have an effect on your offline business and the sales of that offline business and what we like to call a halo effect uh, for, for their consumers and their end consumers. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're exactly right. Nike, you know, there aren't a lot of Nikes out there who we just completely pull out of Amazon. Amazon has an ecosystem that, you know, reverberates across the, across the industry. Uh, for good, for good, and for bad, and you just have to know how to work within their operational and front end parameters to maximize your business and profitability with them. Mm -hmm. No, we had many questions uh, uh, from investors uh, asking: uh, Is Amazon going to take it all? Are we going to see in ten years? From your experience and, and thoughts, in ten years, Amazon uh, really absorbing eighty percent of every new space. Or do you see that leveling out as more and more companies starting to think about what they're losing when they go into uh, Amazon in terms of data and, and customer experience? I mean, what's your take on that? I, I, I don't think so. I think uh, there will be others for sure. I think you see uh, Shopify uh, have, having an ability to create that D2C direct to consumer approach. Uh, you know, a, a D2C branded website um, for a brand who's selling direct to a consumer is still the best place to build a relationship with the end customer and get the most data if you're a brand. Uh, there <clears throat> is still brick and mortar, and I don't foresee that going away in totality for a very long time, if at all, truthfully. You know, I think that uh, that world may have changed significantly. I think COVID has also changed the buying habit 
uh, of, of Roush shopping and getting in and out and, you know, what a buy online pickup pick up in store approach might be for certain retailers, as I suggested earlier with Target and Walmart. Uh, but brick and mortar, uh, you know, on some level will be there, whether it's a dark store interoperating with, you know, being able to walk into a store and purchase. Consumers still want to touch and feel items. They still need to try on clothes on some level. Uh, and I think those experiences of shopping are uh, hard to duplicate online exactly in 100% of the time. So I do think there is plenty of runway for the right retailers who are run and, and have uh, what David suggested earlier is operational excellence and, you know, a, a forward thinking uh, culture and vision to be able to, you know, stay in, in, in the lanes that they should be moving forward. Got it. Yeah, I, I think that's what we see too. And um, um, there must be an alignment with the uh, uh, retailer or the supplier uh, and the platform they're using. Uh, and Amazon can fit some and, and some uh, uh, users of Amazon would want to use other platforms for, for, different, uh, for different reasons. Um, so, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about AutoStore and then if, it's, if, if the solution is geared more towards uh, e-commerce fulfillment, or is it for the uh, regular physical shipment? AutoStore has been around for 25 years. So we're at over 550 installations in 33 countries. So what's nice about AutoStore is we've, we've been doing this for quite some time and, and have a lot of experience that we can bring to the table. And I think as, as commerce evolves, there's an appetite to, to lower the cost, whether you're trying to get closer to the consumer and you have more warehouses than fewer because you want to drive that logistics cost down. In a similar fashion, AutoStore can enable um, a smaller operation with a skeleton staff and more facilities more cost effectively than, than the more manual operations. And especially if they are larger and fewer in, in, um, in, in count. So I think, you know, those are the things that AutoStore is, is bringing when it comes to um, enabling operations to have the product brought to them, which the industry is called goods to person automation and that's that's the category that we fall into so our robots will, will take product and then we'll go store them and then upon an order from an end customer the robots will bring that product back for someone at the at the uh, warehouse to pick that particular product as a part of an order and do it do so in a much smaller space as well as exponentially faster than what their associates or team members can do on their own without the robot. So it gives you a lot of different things. It gives you a lower cost to operate from a labor and real estate perspective, um, as well as the speed. So, you know, every, the companies that we, we talk to all have varying goals. Some want to stay in the warehouse that they're operating in. Others want to get closer to the customer to lower their transportation costs. And as a result, increase uh, the, you know, the, the appetite or opportunity to, to deliver those orders same day or next day, which can certainly be done in a manual environment. It's just really hard and it's very expensive. So we just, we enable companies to have options. And, and probably the, the, the thing that has come up a lot uh, is really business continuity. So business continuity can be you know, interpreted in a number of different ways. And I think COVID is, is illuminated one is what if people don't come to work or what if they can't come to work? You know, what do you do to your business then? And, and that, that's one thing that automation can certainly help with. But beyond that, I think it's, it's just an, an evolution of saying, how am I going to continue to evolve as the customer evolves? So an easy example is you have all these stores that are closed now and the majority of your business was flowing through stores. And e-commerce was a very small percentage of your total outbound shipments or total outbound units or percentage of sales, whatever metric you want to look at. And I think as that completely went upside down on its head during COVID, you've got all these companies that built these supply chains to replenish stores. And most of the time that I have seen, they're not nimble enough to cost effectively pivot and serve that e-commerce customer. So as you have this, unforeseen or very, very hard to forecast future, not only on the velocity, but the profile that each customer will, will in the frequency they purchase 
all of those things are, are unknown. Um, and, and having a supply chain that is nimble and flexible enough to allow you to continue to serve your customer cost effectively mm-hmm. is a big part of, of being cost effective and business continuity um, that we're seeing a major trend uh, forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I understand correctly, uh, so using uh, a solution like Autostore in, in our example um, would be beneficial for uh, an operation uh, that needs to take a larger, a higher utility of its space um, and because you could do more throughput out of that. Um, and that could also allow them to be closer to the end user uh, without really going into a larger facility and usually uh, getting uh, further away from the inner city. Um, so that would allow them to stay in an infill location, uh, uh, use that location to produce higher throughput, and the ability to change the traditional way of how, he, how the flow is inside the warehouse by really uh, adapting it towards the um, e-commerce uh, way of assembling orders. Uh, and as the nature of that, it's less of piles of stuff, but more uh, individual orders from things. Uh, that in the auto store solution that would bring uh, that order immediately without human uh, interaction um, to fulfill that order. So that would also help with social distancing and without uh, uh, adding additional team members uh, to the operation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, the, the simple math is that we're at least, we enable operations to have at least double or triple the throughput and, and half the staff and a third of the space to do the same operation. Uh-huh. Um, every industry is a little different, but you know, a good rule of thumb, uh, those metrics are pretty, pretty consistent across the board. And you know, it, it really depends on what the goals are. Some, sometimes it's higher throughput, sometimes it's faster response time, sometimes it's all the above. But um, mm-hmm. it, it really depends on what the goals are of the particular operation and the strategy from the brand on what they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, especially as more brands try to take ownership of their relationship with the customer, maybe they had it with a third party like Amazon, and they want to bring a lot more of that back in to control their mm-hmm. own destiny. And there's a there's a balance between all of that. You know, I, I think you can't get rid of Amazon altogether or some of these other third parties that, you know, are a way to generate new customers. Uh, but at the same time, how you service those customers long term, there's a more profitable way of doing those. And, and we enable those brands to do so using AutoStore. Well, okay, that is interesting and, and uh, it really aligns with what we see uh, in the market. Uh, however, we know that many users are still, most of the tenants' uh, uh, operations in the United States still don't use uh, this kind of solution, uh, all similar, I must say, uh, even if their operation is in need. Uh, what would you say is um, the usually things that you see customers um, um, I guess, uh, intimidated from when taking on, um, you know, such a system? Is it the capital uh, uh, intensive thing? Is it the ROI? And how do you address that? Wow. I mean, there's, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> there's a, a, a lot of uh, hesitation in the market. Uh, I think partly because most of these operators are, have been heads down, focusing on more day-to-day and a lot of organizations, not all, but a lot of organizations don't have those you know, business units or, or strategy groups that are, are looking outside of the operation and looking at what is best in class for the industry. And I think that's where a lot of the consultants come in to show you know, what can be done or what is being done um, in the market. So I think that, that lack of education and a lack of, of awareness, um, it's, it's funny that I still walk at warehouses from time to time that are doing you know, 30 lines per hour, so 30 picks an hour. And, you know, I kind of scratch my head and think, you know, what decade are we in? Um, <laughs> and and I have to I have to parse back my, my conversation because a lot of our systems have the ability to go as fast as 300, 400, 500, 600 lines or picks per hour. So I have to, per person. So I have to be very careful not to, to shock and awe them too much, um, understanding that, you know, these are operations and, and these are also sometimes their babies that they've been running for um, uh, called sacred cows in the industry. You don't want to, to hurt their feelings in that environment. So I think that's also a huge part of it. Um, 
I would say that the maturation of the industry when it comes to automation, there's a, a wide ranging exposure levels that says these particular pieces of automation are reliable enough to be successful and reliable enough to be truly counted on for operations. And, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think that the technology across the boards of goods to person was cost as cost effective as it is today. Whether it takes large maintenance operations or um, just the scale and nature of, of having um, these systems been running for so long, I, I don't think that people just believe that the ROI of any project, whether it was manual and a, a baby improvement with maybe some more conveyor or pick to light or voice picking or even full scale robotics and automation, there's a lot of hesitation that what they're being proposed can actually come to realization. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the main benefits of auto stores. Yes, we've been at this 25 years. Yes, we're in 33 countries and have over 500 sites. All those things are great. But, you know, one of the ways that I answer that, that, that question or that hesitation is we have hundreds of sites every day that give us a log file of every robot movement and every port movement in every site across the world. So it tells us how often we're up and it tells us how often we're down and, and what issues we have along the way. And that's what I think those types of instances really provide a lot of clarity. And I think beyond that, nobody wants to be the guinea pig. So, you know, having dozens of examples in every vertical uh, market makes it very helpful that, that they, the customer that you're proposing or you're talking to doesn't feel like the guinea pig. So, and you know, we've got a lot of examples of, of customers and references that makes it easier on me in the same way that, you know, the data that we can share that our system is operational 99.6% of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uptime metric is unmatched in the industry. So it really sets us apart um, because at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer that this whole thing is about serving your customer and that customer promise, whether you, whether you say, that the package or the order is going to be delivered in five days or three days, whatever it is, you have to keep your word. And if you don't, the customers are going to notice it. And, you know, <laughs> you talk about being in the catalog industry. I, I remember ordering stuff as a kid when, you know, it would come in six months or less or, you know, 12 weeks or, you know, those types of things. Now with, with any time I place an order within about 15 seconds, I get a notification from UPS or some of the third party company that they've received you know, a pre-shipment authorization for my order. So with all of this transparency, it, it's even more important to be able to have that promise kept with your customer. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why the industry is growing at the rate that it is, in addition to all the other external factors. You know, we've got rising, rising wages across just about every market that we see um, geographic market. And, you know, I think the appetite to work in a warehouse is probably as low as it's ever been. I don't see it getting better anytime soon. And, you know, from, from those perspectives, um, you know, the nature of e-com, e-com is going to, and I, and you can speak to this, uh, I assume you will at some point today, the nature of e-com takes up, you know, at least double to quadruple the industrial real estate footprint than a store fulfillment warehouse will. So you've got the need for more warehouse. You've got the need for more labor that cost more money that don't want to do the work. You've got all these things, not, in the, you know, not to mention the omni-channel effect from store replenishment, cross-stock to, um, you know, to e-commerce and orders. All those things just require more resources across the board. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of tailwind for the industry. Um, and it's a great time to be in the space. Couldn't agree more. And uh, and and last thing on that, Andrew, um, can those solutions, such as and, and I'll refer specifically to AutoStore, can they adapt themselves to the older generation warehouses where you'd usually see those 1980s, uh, you know, 30,000 to 100,000 square foot facilities uh, closer to the consumer population? Or, or do you have to have a class A, you know, brand new buildings to take that on? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll take either one. Uh, one of the benefits of auto store flexibility is that we will wrap around building columns and 
and have the installation look like any Tetris shape you can imagine. But for us, 75% of our installations are in brownfields. So, um, you know, we don't need really high, clear heights. Um, we just, you know, ask for, for flat floors. And, and after that, we take care of the rest. Mm-hmm. So the functionality uh, of the warehouse should stay really basic. And so even if, um, a functional, simple warehouse uh, could take use of such a solution, which is, I think that's something that is really hard to change. And the fact that the, uh, the auto store solution fits itself is probably one of the uh, more interesting things uh, about that. Um, David, uh, I've seen you uh, uh, looking at, at Andrew, what he was saying, and I know you have so much experience with uh, uh, clients uh, uh, that ask for your advice. Uh, we're looking at uh, automating a facility, not just physically, but also the back office. Um, so what are the main problems you see today? Um, you know, thinking about COVID, thinking about e-commerce rise. Uh, so I guess today and in the near future, you think smaller operations are going to have to deal with. Uh, well, you know, having the systems and, uh, you know, what's happened in the past decade with software, software as a service uh, platforms, uh, being able to improve what uh, a company can do with their software. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have clients when they look at automation is, is, and it's one of the concerns that they have is, is, uh, well, how hard is it going to be for us to interface our current stack, technology stack with the automation? Uh, and that is uh, sometimes a, a fairly substantial effort uh, for some of these uh, retailers and brands. For other ones, no, it's, it's going to end up being a very easy application. Uh, and, and it's uh, I've, I've seen it voiced by a couple of my clients where They didn't voice their concern of integration to the vendors. What they kept talking about was ROI, but the real issue was the interface and how they were going to be able to support their interface. Um, But what I do see is, is that the smaller brands, the younger brands that don't have this legacy of infrastructure in place are a little bit more nimble and able to take advantage of that. Their technology stack is more modern. Uh, and especially with the ability for them to do APIs, uh, if the technology stack can support that, then uh, the interfaces become very easy to be able to manage. Uh, the other thing that I look at and what I coach my clients with is, is that think about consistency of performance and you have in a manual operation, a lot of inconsistencies of performance. As you automate, you have to hone your processes. Your processes, when you put automation in, it actually removes a lot of the tactical and execution flexibility that you have. No, I can't unload that truck that just showed up because it didn't show, it showed up without an appointment and my systems are designed to, to preset everything. Uh, There's all sorts of examples of that where smaller companies that are legacy, that have been doing things manually for a long time, they lack that discipline and they lack that consistency of performance. Now, automation will drive consistency of performance up, uh, but it takes quite a bit of uh, internal discipline and management discipline to be able to pull that off. And those are all challenges. I mean, yeah, I can pencil the ROI on on most automation systems. And then I have to go back and look at the human element and go, okay, now how on board is everybody on supporting this? And what should we back off on our ROI in the first couple of years? Eventually, resistance is futile. And so eventually it all works right. But to get it to work right immediately out of the gate requires a lot of discipline and a lot of work to it. And there's some of those brands or retailers that in the past would look at that going, uh, no, we'll take a pass. COVID changed that to where now they're going, we got to do it. And they're now pushing to, to do it. And then I think also uh, almost anybody that's in automated material handling 
uh, systems, they're buried under requests for proposals and they're buried under uh, uh, business, potential business and, and making sales. Uh, the uh, capability or the capacity to fill the orders is uh, much smaller than the demand that's now showing up. And I see that not just in automated systems, but I also see that in just mechanized material handling systems. And so those are all, uh, while there's a tremendous tailwind to the industry, there's also a lot of uh, forward resistance uh, and headwinds, mainly because of capacity, mainly and, you know, the ability to fill those orders because of the challenge of getting people in the factories to, to complete the work or to write the software that's necessary to run these systems. Got it. So, you know, another trend that um, we didn't talk so much about it because we talked a lot about uh, forward logistics, uh, but we, I just saw, um, read many articles that are really nice uh, recent research, I think, uh, uh, by CBRE, um, talking about reverse logistics and showing from stats that 30% of what's being sold on e-commerce is being returned, um, I think, versus 7 to 10% on physical uh, stores. That's a given. Uh, I think some stores, as you, uh, I think I had conversations about that with you, David, in the past. I think Zappos, they have a business model that they return some of those stuff back. So you get 10 things to choose and you could stick with some. Um, and the traditional uh, forward logistics operation just don't know how to deal with that. And reverse logistics, taking back 30% of that product is a whole different operation and I guess we're, go- we're seeing uh, operations outsourcing that part uh, uh, of it. But, um, I mean, it's really something that, I mean, do you see a solution to that problem that everybody uh, does that, uh, uh, David? Or, or is that reverse logistics thing still something people need to think about how it's done? Uh, because it's really hard to anticipate what our customer is going to return. And you don't want to take a few things and ship them two hours back to the main fulfillment center. So what's your take about that? How is that going to evolve? Yeah, part of it has to do with what the product is. Uh, so there are certain products that uh, because the customer order, opened it and handled it, uh, you don't know what got tampered with. And so you can't even, you know, you can't return it back into the retail stream, but you still have to get it back to where you can send it to be refurbished or to a secondary market. Um, there's been quite a bit of activity and, and requests from my, my clients about, you know, they're, they're feeling heavy costs due to, uh, to their reverse logistics, their returns operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the challenges that they're seeing as we dig into the data and start looking at it, some of it has to do with uh, they didn't manage the transportation process back very well. And so they're seeing excessive transportation costs for those returns. Uh, but then also they're, they're running into challenges trying to do it within their own facility. You can process your reverse logistics through the same facility that you fulfill out of, but you've got to put the right equipment in, the right systems to support it, the right processes in place. Uh, especially you, you really should co-locate if most of the product that's coming back, it, you can put back an in inventory for resale to another customer. But if it's a product that you can't resell, uh, then you know, farming it to a third party or centralizing it into one facility because the timeliness of the return isn't as important to the consumer as it is the ease of the return. And so anybody who's in this game, whatever you can do to make it as painless as possible for the customer, for that consumer to do a return within your policy, you should do it. And then uh, you know, streamline what you need to do to drag the costs out of that operation, whether it's a single facility or uh, you know, putting, co-locating or going to a third party. Mm-hmm. Got it. You know, I saw in that uh, same research that um, uh, the most that the class B smaller warehouses in any few locations are a better fit 
for reverse logistics because you can't stack what you don't know is coming. So even if you have you know, a few uh, uh, products, that's enough not to know what's going to happen. And it's hard to do the uh, uh, anticipation of what would really come return because products can change. So yeah, uh, really those are uh, the, uh, uh, the functional same other warehouses in the last mile um, um, are a good fit. And that's interesting because from the real estate perspective, you don't build those so much. Uh, they're really, there's 05 to 0.7% out of the entire uh, infill warehouses is being uh, uh, constructed uh, in average in the past five years where a two and a half to 3% of the larger 200,000 square feet and above uh, warehouses are being constructed. And, uh, and those warehouses are usually naturally uh, further away from the city. And that's why uh, there's, there's a big rent appreciation for those smaller warehouses because demand's coming from last mile users. It's coming from reverse logistics. And it's not, it's, it's not uh, affordable enough to really wreck an old warehouse down and put up uh, 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 multi-story last mile facilities where I think in the United States there's only um, you know, a handful of those. Uh, so that's very uh, uh, interesting. And so I'm, I'm jumping back to you, uh, Corey, uh, with the question of how do you choose uh, a location for uh, last mile direct to consumer? Um, you know, how would you choose a location for Da Vinci? How would you think about um, what will drive you to choose that location? Is it by what's your expectations of your customers? Is it by the type of product? Um, and I guess when you're signing a five-year lease today to expand your business, you're thinking about consumer expectations for those five years. So how do you see that evolving uh, and then affecting your uh, selection? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think the two things that you mentioned, uh, the product type, uh, and, and the customer expectation are two huge drivers. You know, grocery is solving a one to two hour problem. Most general merchandise is solving a one to two day problem. You know, uh, uh, Amazon had a study recently that showed well over 60% of their Prime members opted in for Prime for same, for one day shipments. Uh, there is a, a large portion of them that really didn't need same day shipments. So one day is more important than same day, depending on the product category. Uh, I think also looking at the footprint and when you take Amazon into account versus other online retailers and channels, you know, so many of these other players out there across whether it's home improvement, fashion, mass, you know, still aren't fully at one to two days across their entire assortment. So for DaVinci's purpose and trying to solve that problem for its core customer base, you know, th that's the target that we're, we're looking at. You know, what you're looking at today, though, versus where the world is going to be in three years, I think is going to be very, very different. So where you have most major markets uh, being able to be reached, you know, from three to five facilities across the U.S. Uh, as an underlying rule right now for one to two day delivery, you're going to see, you know, in, in 12, 24 months, uh, you know, two day being out the window, right? And it's going to be one day and same day and coming down. So that hub and spoke model is going to be even more important. Also, you know, although this has taken a little bit of a hit due to COVID, but urbanization is also something that's, that's really important to take note of. And, you know, two years ago, there were a lot of uh, statements and predictions and modeling done to show that most of the world would be in urban facilities, you know, by 2025, 2050, you know, you'd have a large percent of it in, in those cities, right, in those formats. So being near the metropolitan areas is obviously very important. And when you're looking at the map of the U.S. for Da Vinci's purpose, at least, at least there's probably 12 to 15 states and cities that are really important to be close by. Uh, but I think the other thing to take note of here is the outbound transportation side. I mean, you're still looking at 95% of the country being covered by your traditional parcel carriers, post office, UPS, FedEx, obviously being the majority. Your, your non-traditional, your last mile carriers are starting to make a, a presence. Uh, and of course, UPS just shedding off uh, their UPS freight division recently and making major enhancements and, and investments uh, similar to FedEx and their last mile capabilities are still 12 to 24 months away from having that infrastructure uh, being set, right? So, 
you know, uh, you can be as close to the customer as you want. You don't always have somebody who can actually deliver that though in that same day format. And, and you could see all the grocers uh, struggling with that now. I mean, of course, Instacart and, and the like, DoorDash, Ship, Postmates, Uber, you know, they're all getting better at it, but it's still not a perfect solution and still needs a lot of orchestration and, uh, you know, supply chain slash uh, technological support and, and thought leadership behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you and I, in other instances, saw so many uh, startups trying to solve the visibility problem of how this entire thing really, uh, really helps. And um, I heard your take in, in other instances um, where you deal with that as a company trying to figure out what would be the best uh, software, best solution uh, to get that, uh, uh, get that really uh, to, to the optimum. Um, so a little bit about transportation costs, uh, Corey, why do we see more and more operations like yourself uh, wanting to have more um, locations, but smaller than um, less locations, but really doing more trips? Because after all, you can get from uh, uh, Dallas to Memphis probably in a day delivery, but you would rather to ha- rather having one location in Dallas and probably one location in Memphis or Nashville uh, and really do less uh, um, less trips. Why is transportation such a big thing? And how much would you assess you could save, a firm could save by really having more locations and using an infrastructure like DaVinci uh, to save on that, uh, on that uh, I guess, freight cost? Uh, so for me, uh, the definition of supply chain, uh, you know, I'll, I'll call the point of origin to point of consumption and everything in between. This is exactly why DaVinci offers a micro fulfillment operation as a service, network optimization and front end merchandising, because each one of those components affect how a product gets to an end customer. So quite simply, if you have smaller footprints closer to the customer, you are saving on the entire ecosystem from the the employees and FTEs inside the warehouse, the actual physical infrastructure of a smaller footprint uh, with, you know, from the commercial real estate component of it, as well as the transportation costs. And again, you know, uh, looking at offsetting capacity, which is something I've I've talked about a a lot here uh, is really important to take not only the inbound volume of receipts, but also the outbound volume and your, your put away capabilities inside your facility, uh, you know, so that you can get product delivered to a customer in a same day, one day or two day format, because that does have, again, a halo effect against the sale. And Amazon, more than anybody, has factual and proven data that shows your top line sales will increase if you're able to hit those promise dates in, in, in an efficient manner. And obviously your profitability will also uh, increase if you're able to offset those capacities from point of origin to point of consumption. The other component, which is becoming a really big deal, is the carbon footprint as well. And having different types of packaging and you know less emissions uh, are also something that I think people around the world uh, and country are taking a, a big notice on. Definitely, we see investors talking a lot, a lot about the ESG and particularly about the component of the E in the uh, in the ESG and um, uh, the environmental uh, care is is starting to be a regular process of due diligence, I guess, of also your clients when they come to you uh, and think about that. But uh, you know, the simple math is uh, less uh, uh, more trips of uh, a FedEx van uh, or more trips of uh, a full uh, a trailer uh, is probably that's easy to to think what would be better. And I saw another research uh, recently. Uh, I think this time was by Prologis, uh, really showing the amount of emission, uh, but you know, having uh, more facilities for e-commerce versus less facilities when you think about a supply chain to adapt for uh, uh, the uh, the physical stores. And I think really by far the e-commerce uh, uh, infrastructure of supply chain was much uh, better for the environment, mainly because the save on uh, on transport transportation cost. I think it has more waste in terms of packages uh, because the way the orders are, are being fulfilled. But uh, otherwise, in total, uh, it is really it is an outcome of a better um, uh, environment. Uh, so, Corey, last one on this: the uh, many of the uh, traditional, I guess, many of the 3PL market are very traditional, 
And um, I've heard in many instances um, uh, uh, t- tenants saying or, um, or, or similar that uh, it's hard to, that they're not set for the uh, modern uh, uh, e-commerce companies. Do you think uh, the 3PL, is, 3PL market is changing or do you see e-commerce companies, big, small and medium, uh, going into uh, uh, doing their own uh, you know, own service of, uh, of product, really doing the Nike thing of the supply chain? Or do you see, again, the 3PL market just changing to adapt, to not be as traditional and not auto- without any automations? And again, all of the things that DaVinci is trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, history repeats itself on some level. I think the definition of third-party logistics, uh, you know, can be varied, similar to micro-fulfillment. But, you know, when you're looking at title of inventory uh, from that component, you know, uh, DaVinci, even though we call ourselves <clears throat> micro-fulfillment as a surface, as a service uh, with miniaturized fulfillment centers in hyper-local areas, uh, you know, we still are providing a third-party logistics service less owning freight, uh, which we don't own. Uh, you know, that being said, I, I do think that the traditional third-party logistic organizations that are out there are not geared up for e-commerce. And a lot of that has to do with their financial uh, charges that they give to their clients based on cubing out a warehouse and, and charging for every movement and touch point uh, for e-commerce and single piece picks rather than you know, container offloads and wrapping pallets and store shipments and bulk shipments that are going to end up on a brick and mortar modular somewhere. There is a absolute difference with an economic infrastructure and and cost model there. And the traditional third party logistic model is more built for the brick and mortar side of the business and is not efficient uh, for or profitable really for a a client, uh, you know, in today's e-commerce world. DaVinci tries to solve that problem through a simplified pricing structure that allows a fixed and transactional component that allows brands or retailers to have scale. So, you know, uh, they can actually achieve profitability and have incentives to keep growing. Uh, So that's how DaVinci does it a little bit differently. And also, as David pointed out, you know, earlier, the technology integrations and the automation of the order sorting uh, by various facilities closer to the consumer and the API or EDI or uh, other integration methods, uh, you know, and that flexibility and acumen is something that some 3PLs have, but not all, and might be focused on one market sector or one file type, uh, you know, or, or just being in a, in a more manual nature. DaVinci tries to solve those problems with flexibility for a 1P, 3P marketplace or D2C channel and supporting all integration types through an API translation mechanism that's more of an open source and headless commerce uh, as it may be called format. It sounds to me, you know, listening to you that we're going towards a more interdisciplinary kind of a world where uh, real estate owners are going to have to think about their tenants and, for example, help with financing of automation. And their tenants, such as DaVinci, are going to have to think more about their clients and not uh, charging them a financial uh, um, cost model that doesn't align with, with how they're running their business. So it's like everyone in the, in, in, the, in the food chain has to think more about who is he serving because if it didn't change for so many decades, that the, the, there wasn't much need. But now as things uh, evolve, and you know, if for a real estate player, maybe uh, financing of automation is part of its uh, ROI and long-term uh, play, where for a tenant that maybe needs to change things, uh, needs more uh, to think about a modular kind of automation so he could see shorter term than his landlord. So it sounds like things could be shifted uh, uh, between uh, 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 landlords, tenants, and their, and their consumers in order to really see uh, a better picture from any side of, uh, of the equation. Uh, so we'll end with, with that, Corey, uh, um, uh, for you. And then one more question for, for Andrew. Um, how do you see uh, the market um, responding to DaVinci's unique model? I, I think it's it's been welcomed. I think, you know, one of the things that DaVinci has encountered is that uh, similar to what Andrew had suggested earlier about uh, what, what he faces with auto stores, that you do have a lot of legacy brands and, and retailers who 
are so ingrained in the way they've been doing things for so long and and on some level may may hope or think that business will go back to normal at some point and it, it simply won't you know brick and mortar is not going away but there's absolutely a need for agility and uh a cross um a, a cross business opportunity where brands specifically and retailers need to be able to provide their customers and their touch points with service. And that really uh, crosses again into a supply chain, technology, merchandising, forecasting, planning, financial, executive leadership uh, cadence really. And, and all of these components need to create cross-functional teams and not stay in their silos. Otherwise, I, I, I think that they will give up market share. And as we've seen with COVID in, in the early uh, moments of the quarantine, you know, there is a lot of cannibalization of product types and a lot of categories that have faced um, brand switching, really. And I think a lot of that is because of these, these folks not having their supply chain right or the ability to have agility in their models so that they could flex and and be nimble on some level. Got it. And, I, and then here I would add to that. There's, you know, I, I've learned over the years that you know sometimes I'm too close to the operations and supply chain side of things, and I've learned that 3PLs have a lot of different core competencies. And I, my assumption is that warehouse operational excellence is is what they hang their hat on, but in reality a lot of 3PLs don't fit that description. And, and it depends on the size and the organization and the logo and the brand of the 3PL. But I think for a long time, especially in these emerging e-commerce companies, these DTC brands, they were more focused on how do I outsource everything? Number one is how do I outsource customer service? How do I have the right technology outsourced? So like if you look at 10 bullet points and you rank them on what they care about the most, for a number of years, those two things of customer service and technology and website management, those things were, were much higher on the priority than they may be today. And I think as consumers are trying to get faster and you've got these some of these brands that are growing very, very rapidly in those environments, the operational excellence, having multiple facilities really is, is more important. And I think that's why you know, companies like DaVinci are, are so helpful for the industry is it gets back to the operational excellence of how do I serve my customer for as low cost as possible. And, and those things, in my mind, are so needed. And these larger 3PLs, the more legacy brands that people are much more familiar with, they have hundreds of sites, but they've been selling a certain way that I, I think of them much like large cruise ships. It's going to take a long time for them to to turn around because they're not nearly as nimble. But a lot of times, and over the last many decades, they've said, well, well brand A, we're going to put your product in this corner. And brand B, we're going to put your product in this corner. And yes, it's all under one roof, but it's not commingled because they've sold it as such that the product will never touch. And, and there's a certain level of comfort that comes from that. But as you have operational excellence and the right technology, and in auto storage cases, the right automation, you don't have to worry about that, but having multiple brands in a co-mingled environment, that really can drive down your cost more than just sharing labor. And I think it's a nice natural evolution that companies like DaVinci are, are forcing the industry to change and get back to its, its core competency of operational excellence and serving customers for as low cost as possible. I think that there's something else to add to this and it's, you know, from my client's viewpoint, I've been working with several brands that they had been using third parties earlier in their evolution. And with one client, we're pulling the product out of the third party and, and into their own facility. The other uh, three, they moved from the third parties in their own facilities because the third parties just didn't give them the service level that they needed to have to their customers, to their consumers, but also they lacked uh, visibility of what was going on and had much, much higher levels of frustration. And at the end of the day, when they, the CFO you know, penciled out the numbers, it was like, uh, it's actually better financially for us to do our own. Um, I don't 
necessarily always support that. And, you know, part of it is, is, is there are some three PLs out there that know how to do e-commerce. Da Vinci's one of them that has cracked the code. There's a couple of other ones out there, but, you know, it's maybe 15% of the total market out there of three PLs. Uh, most all the other three PLs, they much rather handle pallets in, pallets out, not even have to fingerprint a case. And uh, you know, that's that's also one of the challenges is, you know, not only is the 3PL challenged with, you know, where do I get the money to support the automation, but then do they really have the desire of the business model to be able to support what e-commerce demands? And I don't see a lot of 3PLs having the appetite for that. Yeah, I think as, as transparency continues to happen, mm-hmm. you can't just solve every question with let's just throw more labor at it. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, ten, 10 years ago, maybe. Not anymore. Yeah, that, that, that's for sure. Well, well guys, we uh, ran out of time. So uh, it is certainly exciting times to be in anything in supply chain. Um, so I, I'm so happy to, um, to have had this uh, panel with you all. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, and for our, our viewers, any questions you've had, we'd be happy, we'd happy to uh, answer them on the Q&A session after the next panel that will start in a few minutes. So again, uh, Corey, David, Andrew, thank you for your time. And I guess we will see you on our next uh, our panel in the future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate it.